I'm so excited today, I'm just gonna have you stand for the whole message, so. No, you guys can have a seat. So, uh, uh, yeah, a couple things before I jump into this message today. Really, really important stuff. Um, one is that uh, I had a privilege this last week, uh, over the last couple weeks, to lead a group from Fairfax to Turkey and to uh, visit some of the sites or all of the sites of the seven churches of Revelation that we preached on this summer and actually to also visit some uh, uh, places that were part of the journeys of Paul. It was a rich experience. And I'm not gonna bore you with a bunch of slides and bunch of, because I know that your eyes glaze over when someone travels and comes back and tries to communicate. There's something about being in the space that is just different than trying to communicate it, which is kind of the huge takeaway for me as I stood in Ephesus and as I stood in uh, a number of places that were just these grand cities of the first century that, 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 that had all the power and all the levers, all the economic power, all the cultural power, all the military power, all the political power, had all the power. And as you, like in Ephesus, it's unbelievable how much of it has been excavated and we're told it's only 20% of the total. It was a massive City. It was basically Antioch, Ephesus, Rome, and Alexandria and Egypt that were the four. They were like the New York City, the Tokyo, the Buenos Aires, whatever of the world. And they were like competing for cultural dominance and economic dominance. It's just incredible. And, and worldviews that had to do with all of these gods and, and, and just so many worldviews that were counter. And into these cities, this is what hit me. Into these cities came these nobodies, nobodies that had no cultural influence, no economic influence, no power, no anything, and into these settings and turn the world upside down with the power of the gospel. It does not, as you stand in the midst of these grand cities, it does not make sense. You say there is no way that could happen, but again, it has to do with space. It has to do with being in the space because these followers of Jesus, this little band of nobodies had seen Jesus in the flesh. They had seen God in the flesh. They had seen his love. They had seen his teaching. They had seen everything about who God is. In fact, we're told that when Christ died on the cross, he demonstrated the fullness of his love and because they had seen God. God could have communicated his message any way that he wanted to, but he knew the power of being in the space. He knew the power of the incarnation. He knew the power of being present. And that's what changed the world. And it was just cool to be a part of that. And I came away really more convinced I need to get more of you into these spaces and into these places. And we're working on next year, we're gonna go back to, we're gonna go to Israel, we're gonna go to Jordan. If you're interested in being a part of that, it's gonna be an amazing trip. Uh, contact Valerie Noel. you'll hear a lot more about it, but it's just gonna be a really, really cool experience. Second thing I just wanna say is last night was awesome because we, uh, yeah, you can celebrate. A lot of you were a part of it. We had an event here, Trunk or Treat, that's kind of a substitute event in some respects for just Halloween uh, stuff, and it was incredible. We had, I don't know, 30 plus 
uh, displays and trunks and people giving out stuff. People responding in huge ways. We had, listen, we had over 800 people who were here last night who connected with this place. And a lot of those folks had no connection to Fairfax other than this event. It was an incredible outreach event. So thank you for all of those of you that made that possible. And then the last thing, um, you were given a brochure when you came in. And uh, we're gonna talk about this a lot over the next four weeks, but I wanna give you an introduction uh, to it. Uh, we're starting uh, publicly a, uh, a campaign, a capital campaign that's called Renovate. And Renovate is all about renovating um, this space, basically, that we built back in 2005. It's 16 years old now, and God has done some amazing things, and we're going to celebrate that over the next several weeks. God has done some amazing things in this space. Lives have been transformed. There are names on this floor that you will never see that are covered over by carpet, names that people put down that said, I am believing and trusting that through this space that God will bring the people that I'm praying for to Jesus Christ, and so many of those have come to Christ, which is just such a cool thing. And so now we're kind of at this point, 16 years later, where we need to renovate uh, the space. And uh, the brochure explains all of that better than I will ever be able to explain it. But let me just give you a sense of what it is. It's a million dollar campaign, and it's gonna be focused on five different areas. One is gonna be in-person worship, what we do in here. We wanna create the most immersive kind of worship environment that we can possibly have in this space. And so we're gonna be doing some things, new screens, new cameras, new technology, a lot of things that will help to transform this space into an even more immersive experience as we worship the Lord. The second area is our online worship. Like our online worship is exploding. Uh, people in the community, people around the United States, people around the world who are becoming a part of this. That is not gonna change. Like there's no like magic thing is gonna happen post-COVID, post-pandemic, where there's no longer gonna be an online presence. That is kind of, in many respects, the growing edge, and we wanna reach as many people with the gospel of Jesus Christ as we possibly can. And here's what's really cool. The stuff that we're gonna be doing in this space to make this space more immersive is going to also enhance our online experience and make it more immersive as well. We get a two-for-one deal in some of that. So we wanna create a state-of-the-art studio in this space that allows us to reach even more people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The third area is our coffee shop. And you know, we built this coffee shop to be a place for the community to come, and it has been over the last 16 years, but we wanna take this up to another level. Braddock Road is one of the busiest streets in this part of Fairfax County. George Mason and its 32,000 students is right around the corner. Trinity Christian School is right around the corner as well. We have, there's the possibilities are limitless and we wanna take our coffee shop to another level and create um, an engaging space that people really truly do make a kind of third space in their life. They come to work, to meet friends, to hang out, all of that. And so we're kind of stripping that out and, and, and starting over everything from 
flooring to the counters and all the equipment that's breaking and falling apart and new furnishing and just creating this amazing, amazing space that people can come and gather and experience just the presence of Christ in this space. The fourth area is our lobby. Um, You know, as folks come into this space, the first thing they experience after the parking lot is walking into the lobby. And there's a few seconds when you come into a new space, if you've never been in that space before, where you make lots of conclusions about like what you have entered into. And so we want to kind of redesign the lobby to be a space that is filled with information. We're going to have a new LED screen in there, is warm, inviting, and provides the kind of atmosphere that our greeters can engage people even more effectively to help them take the next steps in their journey of faith, to become a part of this congregation in all of its fullness. And then the fourth area is we're going to uh, build a production center. One of the things that we talk about Fairfax is we wanna gather the people, tell the stories, change the world. And telling the stories is a huge part of that. And so we're gonna create out of one of our community rooms and some of the break-off rooms there, this kind of integrated production suite that allows us to have a space that's dedicated that we don't have right now, a space that is dedicated to be able to tell the stories of what God is doing in this place, to keep people informed of what God is doing, to utilize our online presence in a more effective way, all of that. And then the the sixth thing that, um, there's five things we're focusing on here, but one of the things that we value as a church, you know, one of our... um, One of our core values is giving, it's generosity, and we preach and teach the biblical principle of the tithe and believe that God wants us to start with our generosity right off the top with 10%, and so we model that as a church. So everything that we do for the ministry of this place, we also give a tithe away to have impact around the world. We believe that God has called us to do it. So we're gonna do that with this campaign as well. So 10% of everything that comes in, so if we reach our million dollar goal, $100,000 is going to be given to rebuild homes, refurbish, renovate, rebuild homes in Haiti that have been so devastated by the earthquake there. And uh, yeah, you can celebrate what... uh, And here's the thing, that Haiti is, if you know anything about what's going on in Haiti, Haiti is a mess right now, and it's it's obviously struggled for a long time, but particularly now with the, the assassination of the president and then with the kidnapping of, I think, 17 missionaries that are down there. Internationals are in hiding. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a scary kind of place, but we have folks on the ground who are there, starting with Maquette and with Teach Haiti, that are navigating this for us. And so this is not gonna be kind of this nameless thing of like we sent some money and some people got help. Like we will know the families, we will know the stories of lives that are impacted because of your generosity in the Renovate campaign. And so that's what we're gonna do. So, and uh, here's the cool thing about all of that is that uh, we've already got a jump start on the million dollars. Some generous folks in our church have uh, kind of taken a step to get us started. And so we already have toward the million dollar goal, we already have 166,000 that has been given or pledged. 
And, uh, and here's what you can do. If you're kind of saying, what can I do? How can I help? One is we just want you to pray about what God is leading you to do. We've given you that card. We don't want you to fill it out and try to put it in today because we want you to take some time to pray about this, think about this, and to decide really what it is that God is leading you to do to participate over and above your giving to this place and uh, to bring, hopefully, you don't have to, but to bring that card back next week and we're gonna collect those and, and be able to celebrate the pledges that are given. And if you wanna do that online, you can go online and uh, just go to our front page, our website, and you'll see the opportunity there to fill out a pledge card. You can do that online as well if you prefer to do it that way. And as you look at the card, if you, if you look at the card, and I would encourage you to do that just for a second, that basically there's a place for you to indicate your commitment. And then there are kind of two different options for fulfilling that. One is the option to say, I feel like that I or that we as a family can do this by the end of the year. God has positioned us to do that. God has blessed us in ways this year that allow us to do that. So we're gonna fulfill this um, at the beginning uh, or by the end of this year. Or if you feel like, yeah, I wanna be a part of this. We wanna be a part of this as a family, but we're gonna really need a little bit more time to fulfill that pledge. Then there's a place to check and say, I can fulfill this by the end of 2022. So whether it's fulfilled by the end of 2021 or 2022, we just wanna leave that in your hands, whatever God is leading you to do. And then the other thing is you'll see on that area where there's a pledge card, that this is not just about, you know, as always is the case, about spaces and buildings and all that. It's about people and lives being transformed. And we wanna join with you, just like we did 16 years ago. We wanna join with you in praying for the people that you are praying for, that God will use this place and the ministry of Fairfax to bring them to Christ and into a vibrant relationship with Christ. And if you're willing to just put a name down there, you don't have to put a full name down there if you don't want, but you can put a name down there. And when you turn that pledge card in, it's a place where you can put that name and we will be praying for them. It's kind of our current version of like the names that we wrote on the floor. We will be praying that they will come to Christ as Lord and Savior. Okay, makes sense? Does it make sense? You got an idea of what we're doing? Yeah, God is doing some really cool things. Let me just pray for us. God, I just, I just leave this in your hands. We're so excited about what you have done over the last 16 years in this space. We're so excited about what you're going to do over the next 16 years in this space. We're thankful to be able to be a part of kind of future-proofing this space and making it, uh, continue to make it relevant uh, uh, to our time. And so, Lord, we just ask your blessing upon this. Guide us as we prayerfully consider how to be involved and uh, allow us to live out what you have called us to be. In the name of Christ. And everyone said, amen. All right, so we're in the final week of our Exodus series that's called uh, Journey to Freedom. And uh, as we mentioned every week, Exodus is all about the pursuit of freedom. It's about moving past the things that enslave us and keep us from experiencing the life that God has created us to live. And at its core, as we've said all along, that's what salvation, whatever, you have, whatever term you use, salvation, saved, coming to Jesus, following Jesus, that's what salvation is all about. It's about God setting us free from the things that enslave us and keep us from living out the life that he has created us to live. 
Josh and Kyle did amazing jobs over the last two weeks getting us to like to this point in the Exodus narrative. And I would just say, if you missed either of those two messages, go back to our website and, uh, and check them out. They're incredible messages that really, you won't get the whole idea of what Exodus is all about without seeing those. Now we come to Exodus 40, last chapter in the book. And uh, what do we see Moses doing? We get to the last chapter and Moses is not speaking truth to power. He is not parting the Red Sea. He is not uh, uh, raining down through God's grace manna from heaven. He's not doing any of those kind of exciting things. He's not on the mountaintop getting the Ten Commandments. You get to the 40th chapter, the final chapter of Exodus, and Moses is setting up the tabernacle. In essence, he's like, you know, if you've ever been in a mobile church where they didn't, like they had to set up chairs and all of that, he's like setting up chairs. He, he's like getting the tabernacle ready. Now, let me give you a little context on the tabernacle. The tabernacle consisted of this big rectangular area that created this open courtyard. No roof over it, just this big rectangular area. And that's where the altar was that was used for burnt offerings. Uh, that's where the basin was to wash your hands, wash your feet. It's where the priests washed their hands, washed their feet so that they would be clean as they did the task that they were called to do. And then in the middle, so you get the idea, it's just this big rectangular open courtyard. And then in the middle of this big rectangular courtyard, open courtyard, there is another rectangular structure that is a tent. And when you walked into the tent, the front of that, as soon as you walked into the tent, the front of that was a very large room that was called the holy place. And when you walked into the holy place, in the holy place, you would find a bread, you would find bread on a table, you would find lampstand to give light, and you would find a gold altar that incense was burned on, and some other things that were in the, the holy place. And then behind the holy place, so you got the, the big rectangle, the open courtyard, and then inside the open courtyard, you have this other rectangle that is this tent, and as you walk into the tent, you have this huge area that is called the holy place with all of these items in it. And then you get to like the inner sanctum of that holy place. And you have another room that is called the holy of holies. So you have the holy place and then you have the holy of holies, the really holy place. And the only piece of furniture in the holy of holies is the Ark of the Covenant. And the Holy of Holies was separated from the bigger room by this thick, heavy curtain. So you get the idea. I know that sometimes you see pictures of the tabernacle, and, but then it kind of gets lost. One big rectangle, open courtyard, another rectangle within that, that's a tent. You walk in the tent, big area, that's the holy place. The back of that area this small little room that is called the Holy of Holies, and it's separated from every other part of the tabernacle by this thick drape that keeps it apart. How, this is a whole, how all this is described in Exodus 40. 
he, Moses, took the testimony and placed it in the ark, attached poles to the ark, and put the atonement cover over. Then he brought the ark into the tabernacle and hung the shielding curtain, that's that big, thick curtain, and shielded the ark of the testimony as the Lord commanded him. Moses placed the table in the tent of meeting on the north side, that's the one that had the bread on it, on the north side of the tabernacle, outside the curtain, and he set out the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord commanded him. And he placed the lampstand, that's the stand that gave light in this open area in the, the holy place, in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle. And he set up lamps before the Lord as the Lord commanded him. Moses placed the gold altar in the tent of meeting in front of the curtain and burned fragrance and incense on it as the Lord commanded. Then he put up the curtain at the entrance to the tabernacle, another curtain there, and he set the altar of burnt offerings where all of the offerings that were offered were placed on that altar. It was out in that courtyard that was not covered, so there was no fire risk there. He placed that altar of burnt offering near the entrance to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and offered on it burnt offerings and grain offerings as the Lord commanded. And he placed the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing. And Moses and Aaron and his sons used it to wash their hands and their feet. So they'd go past the altar, they'd wash their hands, wash their feet, and then they would enter into the tent, into the holy place. And they washed, they washed whenever they entered the tent of meeting or approached the altar as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and altar and put up the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. So there's another curtain, the entrance even to come in the courtyard. And so Moses finished his work. Now, here's the deal. And, and I know some of you, like, over the last, just like me reading that, was just like, I need to catch up with Facebook. Like, I need to see what's happening. Because, you know, sometimes we read this stuff, and it seems pretty dry, right? Pretty boring, pretty like, wow, this is the part I'm skipping through in Exodus, especially after all the drama and action that uh, fills the first half of the book, right? There's murder, there's plagues, there's seas that are being parted, there's food falling from the sky, there's water coming from rocks, there's all kinds of things that's happening. God is appearing on mountaintops. I mean, it's just all this incredible stuff. And it's like, who cares about furniture in a tent? Like all this stuff that God is doing, who cares about furniture in some tent? But if you think that, then you really miss the whole point of Exodus. In fact, if you don't understand the significance of the tabernacle, you don't really understand Exodus, right? Because just like we've said from the beginning of the series, Exodus is not just about people being set free from slavery in order to do their own thing. It's not just about people being set free from slavery so that they can make their own decisions and do their own thing and live their own lives and be their own little gods and all of that. It's about being set free from slavery so people can worship God. Exodus is a story that begins in slavery and ends in worship. It begins in slavery, but it ends in worship. And when you think about it, that's the story of like every person that embraces the gospel. Every one of us who's here who has embraced the gospel, like this is our story, right? It's a story that begins by being enslaved to something. Every person on the planet like puts their hope 
in something, like in a relationship or in vocational success or academic success or in their possessions or in acknowledgement in what they do, fame of some sort in what they do or success, uh, sexual fulfillment of some kind or, or some kind of substance or, or themselves. Like sometimes people, like you go, I don't really put my hope in any of that stuff, but I put my hope in myself. Like, you know, it's all about me and controlling my life. Like, that's where I, like, everyone puts their hope in something. And whatever it is that you put your ultimate hope in, if it's not God, you become enslaved to it. It ends up controlling you in some way. So for anyone who's a follower of Jesus, like, your story is the same as the Exodus story. It's a story that begins in enslavement, and it ends with falling on our face in worship totally and completely overwhelmed by the beauty, the majesty, the holiness of God. In fact, no one is truly free until they bow before the glory and the beauty and the majesty of God. Like you may think that you're free, but no one is truly free until you bow before the beauty and the majesty of God. So the overarching message of Exodus is that worship, get this, the overarching message of this book is that worship sets you free, that it is what ultimately sets us free. And that's why the building of the tabernacle, the place where the people worship God, is the culmination of the book of Exodus. In fact, the last, get this, the last, I don't know if you've been reading through Exodus, and I... uh, I won't have you raise your hand. But anyway, if you read through Exodus, the last, there's 40 chapters in Exodus. The last 16 chapters, chapter 25 through 40, is about the building, the details, the furniture in the tabernacle. 16 chapters, almost half of the book. Like when you think about the book of Exodus, is that what you think about Like when they write movies, you know, about Exodus, is that what they're writing movies? Like, let's do a movie about all of the furniture in the tabernacle. That would be awesome and how Moses sets it up. No, that's not, but that's almost half of the book of Exodus is just the, the setting up, the building, the furnishing, the function of the tabernacle. So I wanna spend the rest of our time today just talking about the tabernacle and its role in God's ultimate mission in the world. Let me just begin by by pointing out that every culture, every civilization, I was reminded of this when we were in Turkey and looking at these ancient civilizations, every civilization has its temples. And that's what the tabernacle was. Don't get confused about the tabernacle, temple. The tabernacle was just a portable temple. So the tabernacle and the temple, basically the same. Just a portable temple, a temple that you can move from place to place to place. And every culture has temples because they're convinced as a culture of two things. One, they're convinced that there is some other world beyond this world. It's a world they, they can't see, but it's a world that is real, uh, and, it, and it can benefit us while we are in this world. Like there is another world, uh, you can't see it, but it's real, it's there, and it can benefit us in some ways. And so we need to tap into that 
world. Second thing is this. This is true with all cultures, all civilizations. The second thing is this, is that they're convinced that there is some kind of barrier that separates these two worlds from each other. And so they need to do something to break down the barrier so they can experience the benefits of the other world. So every culture throughout the ages has developed different kinds of rituals, different kinds of priests, different kinds of temples to help break down the barrier between these two worlds and tap into the help that the the gods on the other side of the chasm can hopefully provide. And you know anything about kind of polytheistic God, you know, all kinds of gods, sun gods, uh, fertility gods, harvest gods, food gods, travel gods, you know, all that. Like it's somehow trying to tap into what the gods on the other side of this chasm can provide. Now you may be thinking, well, okay, yeah, Rod, that's, that's true of like ancient cultures, right? That's true of ancient cultures and civilizations, but there's certainly, that's certainly not true of 21st century Western culture. Uh, you know, I know a lot of people, right? Some of you are saying, I know a lot of people who don't even think there is a world beyond this world, that anything that, can, that needs to be explained can be explained by this world kinds of explanations. That they're really even not even sure there is a world beyond. And even if there is a world beyond this world, they certainly don't feel the need to know anything about it or access it in any way in order to live a joy-filled, purposeful, meaningful life. That if there is some world beyond this world, it's just kind of irrelevant to living life in this world. But here's the deal. Just because a culture isn't building physical tabernacles, it doesn't mean that they aren't building other kinds of tabernacles. And in 21st century Western culture, in our pursuit of a life that's filled with joy and happiness and purpose, and all of us are like, I've never met anyone that said, you know what my goal in life is? is kind of a meaningless, purposeless life that isn't really happy and doesn't have much joy. No, all of us want to live a joy-filled life, a purposeful life, a meaningful life, get the end of our life, feel like we've given our life something that matters, all of that. And the reality is that they're um, in our pursuit of a life filled with joy and happiness and meaning and purpose. All of us are tempted to build our own little tabernacles in order to tap in to that. And so our jobs become our tabernacle or a certain relationship becomes our tabernacle or our looks become our tabernacle or our accomplishments become our tabernacle or our possessions, what we own, what we have become our tabernacle. But the tabernacle that the Israelites were instructed to build was a different kind of tabernacle than that. It was designed to create a path that was able to cut through all the barriers that keep us from experiencing the intimate presence of God in our lives. This idea of being in relationship with God, of being able to enter into the intimacy of his presence is incredibly attractive. And especially for those that, you know, of us that have hung out at church or been part of church for a good portion of our lives, whatever. Like we, we talk about this all the time and it's an incredibly attractive 
notion to talk about, right? Like whenever we talk about the intimate presence of God, being able to be in God's presence, to experience his joy, to find meaning and purpose in life in the presence of God, like that's incredibly entrapped. I don't know anyone that says, yeah, I don't want that, especially if you're a follower of Jesus, that says, I don't want to be in the intimate presence of God and to have the intimate presence of God and to experience the intimate presence of God. But then as we actually try to experience that, we start running into all of these barriers, right? Like, there's a difference. If we were to do a little poll and say, how many of you think it would be really awesome to experience the intimate presence of God where your joy and purpose and meaning in life is all rooted in that and on a daily basis to sense that God is just right there with you and you are, you are with him and like, how many of you like want to experience that? Like probably almost everyone would go, yeah, I want to experience that. But then if we were to ask the second question, how, how many of you feel like that you actually are living and dwelling in the intimate presence of God and your joy and peace comes from that? And on a daily basis, there's this sense that God is not a million miles away and he's not distant. Like he's just right there with you, that he's dwelling with you, that you just can't hardly believe how close that he feels. There would probably be some of us that would go, I want that, but I don't necessarily experience that. Or maybe I experience that on a hit and miss basis, or maybe occasionally in certain kind of things, and maybe at a certain worship service or something happens, or my friend gets healed, or you know, all of that. It's just like, man, I feel like God is just so close. But then, like in just the normal day, it just feels like he's a little distant from me. And the Bible tells us, like if, if you go, well, yeah, I, I, I feel guilty about that because I know we're supposed to experience the intimate presence of God. I don't always feel the intimate presence of God. I feel guilty about the fact that I don't feel the intimate presence of God. I don't necessarily even wanna admit that I don't feel the intimate presence of God because I think as a follower of Jesus, I'm supposed to. And so sometimes we aren't very authentic about that. But let me just say that this is not to like justify that. It's just to say all of us are in the same boat. Like all of us are dealing with that. All of us are struggling. And the Bible tells us how that happened. Genesis 2 and 3 talk about how God created the earth. He placed humanity in the Garden of Eden. And in the garden, they, they walked with God. In the garden, they were vulnerable before God. They were intimate in, in intimate presence of God. They experienced the intimacy of God's presence in the garden. And then when humanity decided they wanted to be their own lords, they wanted to control their own lives, they wanted to be their own gods, however you want to phrase it, all of that intimacy was lost and they were forced to leave the garden. And the Bible says that as Adam and Eve left the garden, this is the interesting part, and this is what connects with the tabernacle, it's just very, very cool. God says that when Adam and Eve left the garden, at the entrance to the garden, God placed a cherubim, a kind of angel, a cherubim, and at the entrance to the garden to guard the entrance. And the cherubim was like, uh, it was a reminder of two things. The cherubim was like a reminder that this intimacy, this intimacy between humanity and God had been lost, it had been broken, it had been destroyed because of our wanting to control our own lives and be our own little gods. But it was also a reminder that this was the only way, the only pathway to reestablishing that intimacy. In other words, that the cherubim, like at the entrance, 
was like, okay, yes, this is like a symbol of that that has been broken, but it was also like the cherubim was like the reminder that it's what's back here, it's the garden, it's Eden. Like that is the only place, that is the only way that you can experience this intimacy with God. The only way to reestablish that intimacy. And all of this connects directly to the tabernacle. And here's what's really cool. So if you read through, again, if you read through, if you can plow through, if you can make your way through Exodus 25 through 40, you'll read all the details, all of the detailed, mind-numbing details, right, about how the tabernacle is supposed to be designed, how it's supposed to be built, what's supposed to be on the walls, what's supposed to be on the fabrics, what's supposed to be on the drapery, all of that stuff. And you think, okay, why are all these details here? Like, why, are, like, why couldn't they just say they built a tabernacle and God was present? Why, why are all the details there? Because when you read the details, you see that there are cherubim and palm trees all over the place in the design of the tabernacle. Right, they're all over the place, woven into the construction of the tabernacle in all kinds of places. And when you see all this imagery in the tabernacle, you realize something. You realize that the tabernacle is a prototype of the Garden of Eden. That the message of the tabernacle is, this is the way back. The message of the tabernacle is, there is a way back, and this is the way back. This is the way back into the intimacy of God's presence. This is the way back into joy. This is the way back into purpose and meaning in life. The very design of the tabernacle is a pathway from the outer, think about it, from the outer court to the inner court to the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant resides where the intimate presence of God resides, just like in the garden. The tabernacle is God saying, I'm here. I haven't forgotten you. I haven't abandoned you. I'm breaking down all of the barriers and providing a way for you to once again enter into my intimate presence, just like in the garden. The tabernacle is God's fulfillment of the promise that Kyle was talking about last week so beautifully in his message, where in response to Moses' prayer, God promises to be intimately present with the people of God wherever they go. Because the tabernacle, unlike the temple, he said the temple, the tabernacle is a movable version of the temple. And that's what the people of God needed at that moment. They were in the wilderness. They were wondering. They didn't need like a fixed place. They were on their way somewhere. And so they needed the presence of God to go with them. And the tabernacle is the fulfillment of the promise that God gave to Moses that it doesn't matter where you go, I am there. I will be in your presence. I will go wherever it is that you go. Look at how that is described in verses 34 and following. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. 
And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle in all the travels of the Israelites. Whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they would, they would not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the house of Israel during all of their travels. So the tabernacle is the presence of God moving with the people of God. Now, of course, this physical tabernacle, this tent that Moses was instructed to build was not the complete fulfillment of God's promise. Like it was pointing to something, like so many things that we see in the Old Testament. It was pointing to something. And we're reminded of what it was pointing to actually throughout the Old Testament. And perhaps most clearly by the prophet Ezekiel who has this vision years later. So next week we're starting a new series and it's a series on Ezekiel. And I realize that I don't think uh, in all my time here at Fairfax that I've ever preached a series on Ezekiel. So I'm excited about it and excited about kind of what it is. So years after all of this, after Israel's got to the promised land and then through their disobedience, they've gone into Babylonian exile. And while they're in Babylonian exile, one of this prophet, God raised up this prophet by the name of Ezekiel. And Ezekiel is given this vision, this vision of a temple. While they, the temple's been destroyed, that was part of uh, being captured by the Babylonians and they destroyed the wall, they destroyed the temple, they destroyed all that. So here you have a people who see the temple as being the place where they experience the presence, the intimate presence of God, and now the temple is destroyed and they're wondering like, how do we experience the intimate presence of God? And Ezekiel has this vision of a temple that is far greater than the physical temple or the physical tabernacle that they've constructed in the past. It's this, in the vision, it's this enormous temple where not just the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies, but where everyone is able to go into the Holy of Holies. And not just once a year, like the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies once a year, but everyone could go into the Holy of Holies every year, 24 hours a day, all the time, every moment of every day. And it's not just a temple for the Jews or for any particular group or people group. It's a temple for all people of all nations. That's the vision that Ezekiel has, is of this temple that is far greater than any temple that has ever been built, that not just the priest goes in the Holy of Holies, everyone can go in all the time, all nations, all people, all of, that's the vision of Ezekiel. It's the same temple that Jesus is talking about when he tells the religious leaders in Matthew 26, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. See what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying, I am the temple. Like I am the tabernacle. I'm the altar and the sacrifice that atones for your sin. I'm the basin that cleanses you and washes you. I'm the lampstand that gives you light. I'm the bread that gives you life. I'm the holy of holies that breaks down all of the barriers and makes it possible for you to dwell in the intimate presence of God. All of that, Jesus is saying, is fulfilled in me. 
These temples, these tabernacles, all of this that has been built to try to break down this barrier between this world and this other world, this, all the things that have been done to try to cross this chasm between us and God, Jesus saying, I'm, I'm it. I'm the tabernacle. I'm the temple. I'm the one that brings you back into the intimacy of the garden. I'm the one that allows you to re-enter in to my intimate presence. I am that one. All of that is fulfilled in me. And all the synoptic gospels, all uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all the synoptic gospels report that the moment Jesus died on the cross, this is what's so cool and ties into all this stuff back in the Old Testament in such a cool way, that the moment Jesus died on the cross, something very strange happened in the temple. Mark's gospel describes it this way. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last breath and the curtain the curtain, remember the curtain, the thick curtain that separated the holy of holies from the rest of the tabernacle and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That was the curtain that separated the holy of holies from the rest of the tabernacle. That was the curtain that stood as a barrier between entering into the intimate presence of God. And the moment Jesus died, it's as if, it's as if these two hands came down from heaven and ripped this curtain and said, you will not be needing this anymore. Like you will not be needing this anymore. There is nothing that is separating you in Christ and what Christ has done for you on the cross. There is nothing standing in the way, no barrier standing in the way, not even yourself as a barrier standing in the way of experiencing the intimate presence of God. You will need this curtain no more. Hebrews says it this way. I'll wrap up with this. It says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near, <laughs> let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. The writer of Hebrews in that passage, so much to unpack, we can't unpack it today, but there's two things that the writer of Hebrews is saying. The writer of Hebrews is saying, the one thing that we've been talking about this whole message, the writer of Hebrews is saying, Jesus is the tabernacle. That Jesus is the tabernacle that allows us to enter into the intimate presence of God that takes away all the barriers that stand between sinful humanity and a holy God. That Jesus is the tabernacle. But there's another thing that he is saying. He's saying that when we enter into the beauty of the tabernacle, that we are called to reflect the beauty of that tabernacle in our own lives. 
That's what he's talking about when he says, let us consider how we, having now entered into the beauty of this space, let us consider now how we can spur one another on toward love, toward good deeds, toward living a kind of life where Jesus' prayer is lived out that that heaven and earth would become one, that it would be on earth, in Fairfax, in this place as it is. And let us consider, now that we have entered into the tabernacle, now that the barriers have been removed, now that we have seen this beauty, may we now reflect this beauty in our own lives. In other words, the writer of Hebrews is saying that our lives are to reflect the beauty of the garden. Think about that. Our lives are to reflect the beauty of the garden. We're not just invited back into the garden just like to be in the garden and experience the beauty of the garden. We're being reminded that our lives are to reflect the beauty of the garden. That that we are to bring heaven to earth. That when people look at us, the way we speak, the way we act, the way we react, the way we respond, the way we post, whatever it is, like as people look at us, that they should get a glimpse of the beauty of the garden. Think about that. That when someone looks at my life, when someone looks at your life, that they should get a glimpse of the garden. They should get a glimpse of the way things were when humanity was in the intimate presence of God and the way things will be when heaven and earth become one. That every time someone looks at how we speak and what we say and what we do and how we respond, they should get a glimpse beauty of the garden. Let me just ask you the same question that I asked myself. Like, does your life reflect the beauty of the garden? Like, are you dwelling in the intimate presence of God in a way that reflects the beauty of the one in whose presence you are in. Like being in the intimate presence of God is not just about getting a spiritual high or a spiritual charge. Being in the presence of the the holy God, of the beauty of God is about reflecting that same beauty. That's the question I ask myself, Rod. Does your life reflect the beauty of the garden? Does your life, as you enter into the intimate presence of God, reflect the beauty of the presence of the one in whom you have entered in? God, thank you for the narrative, the story of Scripture. That when we unpack it, we're reminded that there is this grand meta-narrative that spans the entire text that is all about 
your vision for us and for humankind, our breaking of that vision and turning away from that vision and your making a way for us to come back. Not just to come back that we can benefit, but to reflect your glory and your beauty as we dwell in your intimate presence. May we reflect the beauty of the God.